electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good evening, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Slamming the door, Governor Ron DeSantis blocks foreign buyers of real estate in Florida. And now the industry is fighting back. First, it was the PGA Tour. Now it may be the NBA. Gulf oil money makes its next big move into American sports. Summer travel headaches may soon become migraines. Why? Your phone has something to do with it. Elon Musk's SpaceX heads to the stratosphere in a new valuation. And the secret sign that the tech rally may just be getting started, courtesy of Nancy Pelosi's husband. That and much more. Last call is up right now. Well, tonight, millions of Americans are waiting on a Supreme Court decision that will determine whether they have to repay their student loans. That decision is expected to come any day now. But as it stands, payments that were paused because of the pandemic are due to resume in a few months. Senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche joins me now. Kayla, when we're talking about student loan forgiveness from the federal government, what kind of economic impact is that? Well, it would be a pretty big economic impact, Contessa, if it goes forward. That plan would pump an estimated $400 billion into the economy, but that's the big if, if the Supreme Court decides to surprise the market and uphold the plan. The White House designed it to allow borrowers making less than $125,000 or double that for couples to get $10,000 in loans forgiven and $20,000 for individuals with Pell Grants who meet those income requirements. But regardless of how the high court rules, borrowers are already bracing to resume their payments in September after three years of a pandemic-era pause that kept some $185 billion in their pockets instead of in government coffers. The pause saved borrowers between $300 and $500 a month, according to the Education Data Initiative. That's money consumers will no longer have to spend once the pause ends once and for all. Goldman Sachs says that will impact the economy more than loan forgiveness would. Analyst Alec Phillips writing... The end of the student loan payment pause is likely to more than offset any potential boost to consumption from forgiving student debt. But in either case, the impact on spending will likely be noticeable for the first couple months after student loan payments restart. Phillips sees that dent in spending to be up to uh, two-tenths of a percentage point off of PCE if SCOTUS blocks the plan. The other question is, how long will spending be impacted? Interest kept accumulating on the nearly $1.8 trillion in outstanding debt, even if the payments weren't being made. Now many borrowers are underwater. The Center for Responsible Lending took a snapshot of borrowers at Navient, found 63% owe more than they originally took out, and of those, a third owe more than 125% of the original balance. Chipping away at that debt is going to take time, Contessa. And the White House now is prohibited by Congress from extending the pause any further. Okay, okay. so as we wait for the Supreme Court decision on this, Kayla, what kinds of plans is the White House making 
to try and give a boost to these students. They see the student debt thing as being really prohibitive for a lot of people trying to get a start on their careers. Well, the White House is saying they did all they could. They put forth the plan that President Biden campaigned on back in 2020. And if the Supreme Court overrules it, then the Supreme Court overrules it. Congress is blocking them from pausing payments any further. And they did keep the pause in place for three years during COVID and after the pandemic was already over. So certainly borrowers did get a big gift from the administration, and that gift is set to end. Kayla? Sometimes you get it, and sometimes you don't. Thank you for kicking us off tonight. Let's dig in more with our leadoff panel. With us, former Senator and University of Chicago Institute of Politics Director Heidi Heitkamp and American Enterprise Institute Economic Policy Analyst Jimmy Pethakoukas. Both are CNBC contributors, and it's great to have you tonight on Last Call. Senator Heitkamp, let me begin with you. As we watch the Supreme Court, what's the real impact if this decision is not to uphold the Biden administration's efforts at student loan forgiveness? Well, already, as as the reporter has outlined, you cannot extend the moratorium uh, because of the debt limit deal that was done. And so those payments will be resumed. I think students will be shocked as they capitalize that interest. And so I think there's going to be some short-term pain for many students who would otherwise have to begin um, to um, make these payments. But I want to make a point. This won't be the end of it. This plan wasn't the only plan. And the Higher Education Act basically allows the the, um, Congress or allows the administration to compromise, waive, or otherwise reorganize this debt. And so there will be tremendous pressure, I think, on the Biden administration to look at other avenues like interest forgiveness, like re, uh, restructuring the, the consumer debt. And when you when you think, you know, think about this, 40% of the students, uh, former students who have this debt were promised basically that the debt would be wiped out. Supreme Court comes up with a decision that basically yanks that ability away from the administration to provide that support. It's gonna have a political implication as well. And so, um, you know, I think the the hope from the administration is that they'll win the case and um, uh, debt will, or debt repayment will resume for those who um, did not qualify for total debt forgiveness. We, we know that the uh, pause in student loan uh, payments had an impact on the economy. And we know that the resumption of those payments is anticipated to have an impact as well. For instance, key bank downgraded target. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase said it expects that the student loan forgiveness programs will uh, or the lack thereof will hit the margins of this big retailer that we follow. I'm I'm wondering what you think, Jimmy, about these students who all of a sudden, 63% of them, Kayla said, owe more money now than what they borrowed, whether there were unintended consequences for the pause in repayments. <laughs> well, thank you for mentioning unintended consequences. Uh, the first role of government should be not to make things worse. And if the aim of this pl- plan was to help students, by dealing with loans, which ultimately is a college cost issue, then you've created an incentive to make things worse. What are the new incentives, especially if if we have a forgiveness plan, what is the incentive for colleges to do more about costs? What is the incentives for borrowers, the students, to think harder about one, how much they're borrowing, what they're majoring in, 
what kinds of what kinds of careers they can get into. What are the incentives here? Listen, the senator may be absolutely correct about the political impact and promises were made. That promise should not have been made. What you're doing here is making the entire college cost problem worse over the long run. This has been a bad idea. And to talk about it in the sense of how it's going to affect the economy for two quarters you know who is really you, missing the point. You know who doesn't think it's a bad idea? People who owned uh, who owe less than $20,000 back or people who owe. Let's show like we have a breakdown here about the student loan numbers and, and who owes what. I mean, there are uh, 10 percent of these students owe more than $100,000. That is a significant burden if you were just starting post-college in a in a career. I'm just curious, will there be political backlash, do you think, for politicians who've spoken out, Senator Heitkamp, about uh, this effort to pay down the debt ceiling and the the government taking on more than it can uh, handle by giving these students these loans? I mean, there's a real impact for people who are voters. Yeah, I, I think the first thing, those high numbers reflect doctors, lawyers, dentists, people who went to professional schools that are very expensive. It's rare that somebody would drive up about $100,000 worth of debt. But one thing I would tell you is they will look at this, students will look at this and say, Wall Street got a bailout, PPP loans were not repaid. So um, how come we're always at the end of the line? And this is very much a political issue. There were promises made, there were votes taken as a result of it. And I think that all the the politicians who have forgiven PPP loans, which had a much more significant uh, dollar impact to the federal deficit, um, wonder why, why they got the benefit and students don't. And the other thing is, let's remember that students need a fresh start, that if we want them to buy houses, if we want them to start businesses, this is crippling a whole generation of people. And I don't disagree that education needs reform and that you can't just simply give a blank check to uh, educating administrators and say, oh, spend whatever you want, charge whatever you want. It's on the back of the taxpayers. But right now we have a situation where people are struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to begin their lives and they're wondering why they don't get a benefit the way um, small business got a benefit during the pandemic. Jimmy, we believe in- This is a blank check. It is a blank check. We believe in- It's It's obviously a blank check and a check that will continue to be written. Listen, there is not there there is not a crisis here. Listen, most people, all right, who are defaulting on loans, these are the people you think they're being really weighed down. It's like fifteen thousand dollars, and these are people who don't complete college. What you're doing is telling future students and telling colleges nothing needs to change because promises are made, and people have to win elections. And oh, promises were made, and votes were taken. And we're just going to keep writing that check. When does that yeah. listen? There's no listen. I would lo- listen. I would love to have all my kids' student loans wiped out. I would love for someone to pay my mortgage. The incentive systems are completely backwards, and I, I, I find it very hard to believe the senator can't recognize that. Well, and and my my proposal would not have been debt forgiveness. It would have been interest write down with retroactive adjustments because six percent interest was way excessive compared to what the government was getting money for. And so you, we have people, 2003, 2004 students who t- 
took out loans who I think almost 30% of them still owe more, even though they've been paying on that student debt. This is, this is not they have a, years to pay money back. Well, they have you years know, to pay that money back and, and they have years of making, of making lots of money. This, listen, we are creating the perception your, of a crisis to, yeah. to justify you, 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 a bad promise more, that was made. Well, we have and we haven't even scratched the surface of what happens when rate hikes start to take impact on student loans. And and, you know, Senator Heitkamp, I don't know what you what you're thinking about tuition, but liberal arts college and here your kid comes to you and says, I want to study philosophy, but it's going to cost seventy thousand dollars a year. How much influence does the parent have? That's that's going to be key. Thank yeah, you. And do you know who studied philosophy and religion? Who? Steve. Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates. All right. Well, then so, in that case, I won't stand in the way when my children come and ask for it. Just tell them to study philosophy and computer science. That's what I did with my kid. Jimmy, thank you very much. Senator Heitkamp, great to see you. Appreciate both. Here's what happened to your money this week. The Dow fell 1.7%. The S&P fell 1%. The NASDAQ dropped 1.4%. As for studs and duds, the biggest winner of the week was CarMax, up 8.3%. The biggest loser and phase energy down 12.7. Up next, as if airline travel wasn't painful enough, buckle up your lap belts, everybody. It could get bumpier. A new warning from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Plus, Florida's glitzy real estate industry blows its stack. A showdown over foreign buyers is escalating with Governor Ron DeSantis. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Time for tomorrow news tonight. Stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First, tensions are flaring in Russia. The owner of the Wagner paramilitary group, a private Russian military organization, is accusing the Russian military of launching strikes on its training camps and killing troops. The group's owner vows he will retaliate and says Russia's rationale for invading Ukraine was, quote, based on lies. The Russian defense secretary has denied Wagner's accusations. The White House National Security Council released a statement just moments ago on the situation, saying we are monitoring it and will be consulting with allies and partners on these developments. Next up, fresh job cuts at Goldman Sachs. This time, managing directors are the target. About 125 of them will lose their jobs, according to Bloomberg. Goldman's investment banking division is among the units affected. 
It's at least the third round of job cuts for the bank in less than a year. And it's a sky-high price for Elon Musk's SpaceX. The company's aiming for a valuation of $150 billion. SpaceX will reportedly sell employee shares at $81 to reach it. The company had previously launched a sale in December where shares were valued at $77 each. And finally, summer air travel could see more delays because we all want phones that are faster and better connected. You see, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is warning that the rollout of 5G technology could delay flights because airplanes have not been able to retrofit all their planes, they say because of supply chain issues. The upgrades keep 5G from interfering with the aviation systems that measure the distance from the ground. So, you know, if there's interference, the planes may not be able to land when visibility is bad. Well, airlines were supposed to complete the work by July 1st when the wireless carriers roll out 5G signals. My next guest was at the forefront of the 5G rollout in the U.S. Former FCC Commissioner Ajit Pai joins me. How worried should the flying public be about, one, the safety of their planes, top of mind, but two, what are we in for sitting on the tarmac? Well, with respect to the first question, airline passengers, and I count myself among them, should feel just fine. Engineers have studied this for many years. There's been no evidence in other countries that are using similar spectrum that there's any kind of interference with aviation or altimeters in particular. And the FCC in the United States took a special care to make sure that there wouldn't be any type of interference. And so we made sure we auctioned 5G frequencies that were relatively far from the frequencies that are used by aviation for altimeters. And so I feel comfortable as a passenger yesterday and you should tomorrow just as much. All right. The delays, you think we should be in store for delays because of this interference? I certainly hope not. And you know, this is a classic dog ate my homework excuse on the part of the aviation industry to the extent that they haven't retrofitted these altimeters already, as well as candidly, the federal government. You know, we're nearing the five year anniversary, July 2018, when the FCC made clear to the aviation industry, to the FAA and to the DOT that we were looking at auctioning off spectrum that was somewhat close to these aviation altimeters. And so we said, look, give us an estimate of how many airlines are affected by this, how many planes are. And let's see what the evidence shows. They hadn't, they never did that for several years and only belatedly came earlier this year, the FAA estimated that it would cost $26 million to retrofit all of the planes that didn't have up-to-date altimeters. Now, to give you a perspective of how little $26 million is, the aviation industry last year made $6.8 billion, with a B, dollars just from bag fees. So if they you know, just devoted a tiny little percentage of that to upgrading altimeters, we wouldn't be in this situation today. American Airlines says its entire fleet will be retrofitted and ready to go by that July 1st deadline. The Department of Transportation says 80% of the aircraft in the United States have this new equipment that's that's ready to roll out. And still, the Department of um, uh, Transportation, the, the Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, says, look, if you haven't done it and you book so many flights that are outside your retrofitted planes, there could be consequences for you. Do you what do you think he's trying to accomplish by throwing down that gauntlet? Well, I think the glass half full explanation is that he's trying to prod those airlines that have not yet done the necessary work to speed up the work that's necessary. The glass half empty explanation is that you know he's essentially trying to scare the view the, the flying public 
into thinking that there's something genuine about the safety concern here. And again, this has been undertaken for a number of years. There's been no ex uh, examples of interference from other countries that are using a similar spectrum for aviation and for 5G. And so I would hope that the DOT, the FAA, and the airlines would do everything necessary to get to 100% compliance by July 1st. Ajit Pai, nice to see you. Thank you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, a big brawl over real estate blows up in the Sunshine State. And that's where CNBC's Robert Frank is standing by, I guess, watching it all blow up, right? Yeah, Contessa, well, foreign buyers have been critical to the growth of Florida real estate, especially here in Miami. We're going to tell you about the new law that would blacklist buyers from seven different countries and cost potentially billions of dollars in sales. All that plus a Florida sunset coming up after the break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. A fight is brewing between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the state's real estate industry. A new law is set to ban citizens from certain countries from buying property in the Sunshine State. The move is estimated to cost billions of dollars in lost sales. CNBC's Robert Frank is live in South Florida with more on this. All right, break down for me how this works. All right, Contessa, so we're at a house uh, that's in Bay Harbor Islands, listed at just under $20 million. But starting next week, it will be illegal to sell this house for buyers for certain countries. Now, the citizens of China would be prevented from buying real estate throughout the state of Florida. Citizens of Russia, Venezuela, and four other countries would be prevented from buying within 10 miles of certain infrastructure. That is a very long list that includes airports, seaports, water treatment plants, electrical facilities, telecom systems. When you draw that map, it basically precludes all of Miami and much of the state of Florida from these buyers. Governor DeSantis says this is all designed to prevent the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. But brokers say when you include all these countries, it is an all-out attack on the overseas buyer in Florida. Florida is the top state in the country when it comes to overseas buyers, and China is the top source of those buyers with $6 billion worth of sales last year. It's the signal that it sends to international buyers all over the world. It's saying that, you know, you're not welcome here, your investment's not welcome here, and that's a very concerning item. Especially damaging is the inclusion of Venezuela. The city of Doral near the airport has such a large Venezuelan population that it's known as Doralizuela. And because it's near the airport, it would now be a no-buy zone. There is a lot of confusion as to if this affects all Venezuelans or just a certain side of Venezuelans. So when you read the headlines where it says Venezuelans can buy properties, everybody panics. Now, to enforce this law, sellers of properties like this one could face fines or even jail time if they sell to any one of these countries. Now, there is a lawsuit from citizens of China in Florida that's seeking to block the law. But unless there is an injunction, Contessa, 
this law will take effect starting next week on July 1st. I, I know in that case, the ACLU is siding with this group of Chinese citizens. I, I'm just curious, do you know whether there's been any input from the federal government about Florida doing this? Because as we know, foreign policy and the threat of international uh, spying from the Chinese Communist Party clearly falls under the purview of the federal government. Well, it does in a sense in the agencies that deal with that, but the states have taken it upon themselves to add a new layer of legislation. There are now 25 states, Contessa, that have some form of legislation either in the works or passed that prevent Chinese companies or individuals from buying agricultural land. This is all geared toward farming. But what Florida has done, which has taken it to a whole new level, is applied it to residential sales and also broadened it to these seven other countries. And again, for Florida, it's the, the Russians, the Venezuelans, and the Chinese that are especially important. Venezuelans have been a huge part of Miami's growth. So there, there certainly isn't national precedent for a law that is this expansive and this aggressive against this problem. All right. So, Robert, will you stay and join me for the next part of the conversation? Maya Vander comes to us from the real estate firm Maya Vander Group. You may actually know her from the Netflix series Selling Sunset. We're so glad to have you on Last Call tonight, Maya. What's the impact for you? What's the impact on your business? Should the court challenge of this allow Governor DeSantis's ruling to stand? Uh, so thank you for having me, first of all. So, you know, the bill is, is, is obviously a big deal. It's going to happen July 1st, as I, as I learned literally this morning, because one of my clients called me and told me the market is going to change and so on. Uh, I agree with what I've heard. Uh, we have a lot of buyers here from Venezuela and, and frankly, Russia as well. Those are the main countries that I think um, Florida would be affected, at least Miami, I should say. Uh, that being said, thankfully, Miami and South Florida has a lot of international clients from everywhere. Um, you know, you're talking about and domestic, you know, during COVID, obviously, a lot of domestic from the Northeast and California moved down here. I do not see a huge effect. Uh, that will make a market crash or change. Uh, but yes, we are very proud uh, to sell here and have diversity with different you know, countries and ethnicities. So that's a shame a little bit that uh, we have to go through such you know, a, a decision. That being said, I'm sure the bill is very complicated and I haven't read into it in detail. I'm just curious, are you fielding worried phone calls from buyers and potential sellers about what it means for pending deals? Um, not yet, because, you know, I don't think it just it's a new bill they just signed. I think it's going to probably have some revisions, in my opinion. I don't think it's the last call and finish line. Uh, it sounds like very like dry. And I agree to one of the agents, it, you know, was in your show. Uh, is it like certain people from from Venezuela, from a certain party? And so is the other countries. I don't think it's going to affect the market as much. Yes, I know we have a lot of uh, foreign uh, international buyers here, but there are so many other countries that can come and buy in South Florida and Miami. Uh, so I, don't, I do not think it's going to make a big deal on the market, to be honest. Robert, I'm curious. Do you think there will be a chilling effect, not just from the buyers from, I've got it here, you know, Venezuela, Syria, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, but from other international buyers who see that as a headline and say, well, if it could happen to Venezuela, what happens when there's a conflict with my country? Yeah, look, I, I think there's, you know, Maya makes two important points, one of which is that for right now, the foreign buyers in Florida are 
from New York and Los Angeles. They've replaced the Latin Americans, the Russians, and to some degree the Chinese when it comes to buying real estate. That's for right now. But we've seen that market start to slow. Many of the people who are going to move to New York to Florida have already done so. And many brokers were counting on a return of these foreign buyers in the coming years to soak up some of this supply. The other issue is that when it comes to this law, it is so confusing that people just don't understand it yet. There's so many different rules for so many different categories of buyers and sellers and locations, and nobody's created maps yet to figure out whether they're close enough to an airport to matter, close enough to a seaport. Is a water filtration plant count as an important yeah. piece of infrastructure? So it, it, th- these laws, these rules and this law are so confusing that even the brokers who have studied it, the lawyers who have studied it, really can't figure it out. And the problem is a seller who perhaps accidentally doesn't interview a potential buyer well enough to know exactly what their citizenship sure. status is, where their house is located, and sells to somebody could face jail time. I mean, that's bananas. You could sell your house to the wrong person without doing due diligence and get jail time. So I, I just don't think many people are aware of it yet because it takes effect next week. And it's so complicated that it's going to take a while for people to truly understand it. Maya, thank you for joining us tonight. Robert Frank, there is nothing like standing in a suit and a tie out by the pool in Miami at sunset time. You are a classy gentleman. Thank you, sir. Still ahead, the Saudis make a play for the PGA first. And now Qatar wants to buy a slice of the NBA's Washington Wizards and more. Is a tidal wave of golf money coming for American sports? And are we okay with that? Back after this. Welcome back. It's time for our last call watch list, names that we keep an eye on. First, a good day and a great week for Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency hit a one-year high today, sitting pretty above 30,000. It's up 16% this week. Its rally comes as BlackRock prepares a spot Bitcoin ETF and top trading giants move to allow for easier crypto trading. Next up, Goldman Sachs. It will likely have to take a large write-down for its $2.2 billion acquisition of fintech lender GreenSky in 2021. Goldman's looking to unload the business, but bids are coming in below expectations, according to people familiar with the situation. It's the latest hit for CEO David Solomon. Goldman stock slid today and declined every day this week for total losses of 7%. And last up, home builder Hovnanian Enterprises. Its CEO, Ara Hovnanian, has sold 47,000 shares, according to a new securities filing. It comes out to about $4.33 million worth of stock. The sale maybe is not that surprising. Hovnanian stock is up nearly 120% this year, a little profit-taking perhaps. Meantime, we got some major news from the world of sports. Qatar's sovereign wealth fund is set to buy a 5% stake in monumental sports and entertainment. That's the parent company that owns the NBA's Washington Wizards, NHL's Capitals, and WNBA's Mystics. It would be a deal worth just north of $4 billion, and it's pending review from the NBA. Of course, Qatar's neighbor, Saudi Arabia, is taking on two other sports, Earlier this month, the PGA Tour agreed to merge with Saudi-backed rival Live Golf. And Saudi Arabia's soccer league has attracted some of the world's biggest stars, including Cristiano Ronaldo. Are we seeing the start of the Persian Gulf's takeover of American sports? Let's ask Abe Madcor. He's the publisher and executive editor of the Sports Business Journal. Abe, thank you for being on Last Call. 
Great to be with you, Contessa. Set the scene for me about why Qatar's interest in Washington, D.C. sports is making headlines. Well, it's the first sovereign fund to be able to invest in a major professional sports league in America. And so that's going to make a lot of headlines. And we could, to your point earlier, start seeing a run of these institutional investors, uh, foreign institutional investors, invest in American sports teams because they want to be very close to American sports. And what's in it for, say, Ted Leonsitz, who's a, who's a highly regarded owner of these sports teams? Yeah, Contessa Money. Uh, these owners want capital. They want liquidity because they have big, big growth plans. And for $200 million, Ted Leonsis, by just giving up a 5% stake in his monumental sports and entertainment, can take that money and invest in this new regional sports network he bought. They want to make improvements to Capital One Arena, Contessa. And he's also made a reported bid for the Washington Nationals, the baseball team in that market. He could use this funding to complete, potentially, a purchase for the Washington Nationals. Do you see a difference between what is the attempted 5% purchase of the monuments or, or, and what we see between this proposed merger between Live Golf and uh, the PGA? I mean, we know that there are now congressional inquiries into this m proposed merger and whether that should happen. Is there a difference? I think there's a difference. One is, you know, we're talking about the Justice Department examination into the Saudi PIF investment into PGA Tour is largely about competitive, anti-competitive behavior and, and antitrust. Also, the PGA Tour is a nonprofit. With Ted Leonsis and Monumental Sports, you have a privately owned for-profit enterprise, and it's only for 5% of that company. So I think there's a big difference. I really don't think you're going to have government, government scrutiny on this deal, Contessa. At what point does it become a problem for sports fans? I mean, is it when America's pastime, baseball, becomes a target for Gulf oil money? I think it's a great question. And I think that Ted Leonsis and the NBA and other leagues that take uh, investment from foreign sovereign funds are going to have to answer that for their fans. And what kind of capital are they open to taking? And I think that we all know the issues with Qatar. There are some human rights issues. And I think that that is something that will be, I will say, examined quite closely as this goes forward. And in a lot of cases, Abe, you've got um, eight sports teams, the arenas, the state, they're just seen as community assets. Is that part right. of the, the rub here, the thing that just doesn't quite sit right with some sports fans and with, with some in the business community? Well, it's a fair point because you're to your point, owners have always said they're stewards of a community asset in a local market. And so if I'm a fan of monumental sports and entertainment and the Wizards and the Capitals, and I see an influx yeah. or an investment of Qatari funds, it does make me question. But I, I think you're going to see more of this in the future. Do you also question where we are as a society when we have two titans of business threatening a cage match against each other? I mean, where are we in the appetite for rough and tumble sports when we've got um, the head of Meta and, and yeah. Elon Musk? Go ahead. You, you weigh in. I think, you know, the vanity play, Contessa, if it happens, 
People will pay to watch two billionaires try to beat the blank out of each other. I, I can see the sports books and the casino and the gaming companies all loving this contestant because people pay to watch people beat each other up. It's just it's happens over the years, and this will be heavily hyped, and certainly it will drive revenue for these yeah. gaming sportsbook companies. Well, you know, I cover Las Vegas and the casinos, and so you know next week we're going to be on TV talking about whether this is going to increase the bottom line for the casino. They already have F1 in the Super Bowl coming next year. Do they really need this kind of cage match? That's to come next week. You'll have to wait with bated breath for that one. Abe, thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Speaking of games, July 25th in Los Angeles, CNBC and Boardroom host Game Plan, a high-powered event bringing in the most influential leaders across the sports landscape, including athletes, owners, investors, and innovators, to talk the new opportunities at this intersection of sports and business. Scan the QR code to learn more or visit cnbcevents.com slash game plan. It's time now for a quicker than the ticker, all the news that mattered in the world of business and a few stories we just like. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Starting off with some very good news on this Friday. The Pennsylvania stretch of I-95 reopened today after a major collapse due to a tanker fire just two weeks ago. Americans are becoming cheapskates when it comes to charity. A new report from Giving USA concludes Americans donated only 1.7% of their personal disposable income to charity in 2022, the lowest level since 1995. Honda's recalling 1.2 million vehicles, including Odyssey minivans, Pilot, and Passport SUVs due to an issue with the rearview camera. An island in Finland is declaring itself a phone-free zone this summer. Uko Tamio is encouraging visitors to disconnect from social media, keep the smartphones in their pockets, good luck convincing the kids to go. Dumb Money, a new movie about GameStop meme stock, just dropped a new trailer, and it features quite a bit of CNBC coverage. And who wouldn't want to watch that? I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. That movie comes out in September, so patience is a virtue. Coming up, Nancy Pelosi's husband pulls the trigger on a big tech stock purchase. Has the master trader struck again? Welcome back. June is Pride Month, where we look at the progress made by the LGBTQ community and the challenges ahead. One big challenge, the cost for gay men in starting a family. CNBC's Courtney Reagan joins us with more. Hi, Court. Hi, Contessa. So 40% of U.S. employers offered some type of fertility benefits in 2022. That's up from 30% in 2020. But many policies exclude same-sex couples from fertility treatment under the coverage. We were shocked. Uh, when we started to look into it and realized nothing is covered by insurance unless you can prove that you're infertile. The first step for us uh, was to get our sperm tested. And um, for us, that was the only part of the process that was covered through our insurance. Well, 63% of LGBTQ plus individuals plan to become parents. Only 10% of employers offer a surrogacy benefit. If diversity, equity, inclusion is really important to you, then you have to look at all of these paths to family building. For employers that offer a surrogacy or adoption benefit, it's typically a $10,000 reimbursement. 
the average cost of surrogacy has gone from $75,000 five years ago to anywhere between $150,000 and $250,000. Surrogacy costs include agency and legal fees, all expenses, compensation, insurance for the carrier, and donor eggs since gay men can't biologically provide them. A new progeny survey, survey of LGBTQ employees shows 79% would consider leaving their current job for one that offers better fertility and family building benefits. We hear from employees who are same sex that are actually asking for inclusive fertility benefits like carrot as part of their job package before they accept a role. Tech companies have been among the first to offer these types of benefits, Contessa, but Progeny said it now has clients in 40 different industries. So many more are starting to see these as both retention and attraction for employees. Do you have any inclination that, you know, the companies that go out and they espouse diversity, equity, and inclusion, they talk the talk around uh, Pride Month, for instance, that there is enough pressure from valued employees to want to change those policies about what's covered? I think that's a great question. And we've actually seen some evidence from the people that we've talked to that that has actually happened, that a lot of these companies don't mean to have these exclusions in the policies, they don't actually realize that that's how the policies work when employees try to use them. And so what they do is once they find out, they decide, well, then we're going to supplement that. We're going to offer an adoption or surrogacy uh, reimbursement option for you. And most of those, as I mentioned, are around $10,000, a small dent in the overall cost, but it shows that companies care and they're listening. And one of the couples that we spoke to did exactly that, went to the company they worked for and said, look, you guys don't have this. It doesn't include us. And they said, oh, my gosh, we didn't even realize. We'll add it in. Well, that's the first step. Courtney, thank you for bringing us that story. Thanks, Contessa. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is facing four lawsuits over the Inflation Reduction Act and lowering drug prices. The woman who will help lead those price negotiations is defending the fairness of the process. Bertha Coombs joins us now from the Aspen Ideas Health Festival with more on that. Hello, Bertha. Hey, Contessa, you know, I sat down with Medicare director Mina Sashimani, just as the Pharmaceutical Researchers and Manufacturers Association, Pharma, joined Merck, Bristol-Myers, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce suing the government, calling the IRA negotiation prices unconstitutional, arguing that it amounts to an offer that they can't refuse. Dr. Sashimani says it's just like negotiations in other countries, and she's committed to fairness. The law also has off-ramps for the manufacturers if they you know, do not want to participate. You know, an excise tax or the ability to leave um, the, the Medicare you know, and Medicaid market as well. Yeah, it's just that so-called off-ramp that really is what triggers drug makers. They say that excise tax of between 190% to 1900% of their revenues violates the Eighth Amendment's excessive fine clause. Now, the roadmap here, barring a court action, means that the first 10 drugs will be named on September 1st. Drug makers have a month to decide whether they're going to negotiate or not, and then price discussions will would begin in February, they'd go on through the summer, with the final prices disclosed in September of next year. Dr. Sashimani says she thinks the industry is strong enough to navigate this. The um, venture creation firm that was behind Moderna has created, you know, a new um, startup uh, for small molecules, right? Bayer announced 
$1 billion in investments and innovation in the U.S. So I think that the industry is strong and is thriving and will continue to thrive and will continue to innovate. Then from the pipeline to what you were talking about with, you know, prices, it's important to remember that what we are doing in implementing the Inflation Reduction Act is part of a larger drug market. You know, in terms, uh, in terms of those market forces, one insurer I talked to today, in fact, worries that large employer plans could end up facing even higher prices for drugs to make up for the Medicare discounts. It's the same thing that we see, Contessa, when it comes to hospital prices. Private payers pay a lot more than Medicare patients. All right, so we wait and watch to see how the courts react to this. Bertha, thank you for that. Nice to see you. Coming up, a potential signal that Tech's rally is anything but done. Nancy Pelosi's husband is getting bullish on two of its biggest names. We dive into it next. Welcome back to Last Call. We've talked about former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, and really how he's known for his skillfully timed stock trades, and he's done it again. It's tonight's Capital Gains, where we track who's buying and selling in D.C. Let's bring in Kate Kelly, the Washington money influence and policy correspondent for The New York Times. She's also a CNBC contributor. Kate, great to see you. So tell me what the Pelosi's have been up to. Great to see you too, Contessa. Thanks for having me back. So you're absolutely right with your intro. Paul Pelosi, the wife of the former speaker, Nancy Pelosi, is probably back of the envelope calculations wise, one of the most successful uh, traders who's connected to or is is a member of Congress. Um, he most recently uh, did some transactions in both Apple and Microsoft that look to have been highly successful. Now, I'm caveating this because we don't have all the details on the economics of these trades, uh, which started with options trades. But essentially, he exercised options in these stocks late last week and effectively took control of the stocks via equity. Sorry, not control of the companies, but he took equity positions is what I mean. And uh, it looks as though, based on the the back of the envelope calculations that I got from an options trader, I know uh, the profits were significant. Um, 205,000 on the Apple, about 360 odd on the Microsoft. And if he's still hanging on to these positions, they currently have a face value of just under a million and 1.7 million respectively. Okay. It's great money if you can get there. It sounds like there's still a little room for interpretation. The big reason, what, two reasons why we're interested. One, because he seems to be good at trading. He seems to make money at it from what we know. But two, is he making money because his wife knows something that regular investors don't know? Do you think that there's any less scrutiny on Paul Pelosi because his wife is no longer speaker? Yeah, I mean, this is the age-old question, the propriety of all of this, and whether members of Congress and their immediate family members should have their uh, financial activities reined in. Many people think they do. Uh, there was legislation put in place last year to address, I'm sorry, proposed last year <laughs> to try to address this, including by a senior Democrat who's quite close to Pelosi, and it didn't really go anywhere. Some of it's been reintroduced this year. Um, do I think she's getting less scrutiny now that she's no longer speaker? Probably, although there are still a number of social media accounts and vehicles that try to um, 
essentially emanate Paul Pelosi's trading because he is regarded as being so successful. You know, what's interesting is he is, to be fair, a lifelong real estate and technology investor. This is what he does for a living from before his wife was even in politics. Also, though, he tends yeah. to be very active in some of these tech names, Contessa, tech tech companies that are based in their state and maybe even in their city of San Francisco. Kate, great to talk to you. Thank you. We did reach out to former Speaker Pelosi's office, but we didn't hear back by the time we came on for this discussion. That is your last call for tonight. We hope you have a great weekend. The CNBC documentary China's Corporate Spy War is next. Have a great weekend, everybody. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.